They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Elliot, so I'm thinking, since we have so many issues with our opening, and I'm saying, wow, I've been watching some YouTube. You might not have heard of it. It's a website with videos on it. But I've been watching this, and they all have, right, like established greetings. So I thought we could have a fun greeting where we go like, hey, what's up, movie fans? It's your boy, Nathan and Elliot, the Magellans at the movie. And you could do like some noises behind it, like, what's up, movie fans? And then you could do like a, like an eagle cry or something. I think that could be fun if we had an established intro after our intro, like post-intro statement. What do you think of that? Nope. Dang. <laughs> not even going to give it the time of day. Nope, I'm not even going to devote verbiage to explain why that's a stupid idea. <laughs> I think it'd be kind of fun. I think it'd be neat. I don't think you have the energy for it, but I am very tired. Yeah. Elliot, Elliot's tired. Um, this is, you know, we don't have a lot of stuff to banter about here. We use most of our good banter for the previous episode. Oh, here's one thing though. With this episode, the 61st episode of Magellan's at the Movies, we are officially, as far as I know, the longest-running movie review podcast in the Midwest because the Turbo Team podcast ended at episode 60. So we're now, we're now longer running than them. What do you think of that, Elliot? I really don't care, to be honest. Um, I don't think that... Anyone cares. I don't think that our fan bases, insofar as they exist, have much of a rivalry that anyone would be upset by this fact. You're right. There's there's not much of a rivalry because one of those podcasts is dead in the water and the other is the fastest growing podcast on the internet today. <laughs> I mean, it's only dead in the water because its hosts have all gone on to bigger and better things, whereas you and I are still stuck in our pathetic everyday lives with nothing better to do. Wow. Well, that's that's great. Okay. Let's get into the movie. Enough of the banter. It's kind of bumming me out. <laughs> I'll introduce this movie because you introduced uh, Barbie. But this is, yeah, part two of our Barbenheimer double feature. We did Barbie yesterday with our sister. Check that episode out if you haven't. Did you say this check is... that episode out? Because that's cringe. No, I said check. Check that episode out. I was not attempting to make a pun. I would never try and do something like that. Anyway, um, this is Oppenheimer. 
This is the widely anticipated, I want to say, 11th or 12th movie from Christopher Nolan. I'm waiting I, for confirmation. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, I, I told you I'm tired. I'm not. I'm not on the ball. I'm gonna say it's twelve. Hold on a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So this is his twelfth. Okay, good deal. So this is the highly anticipated twelfth movie from. I think probably the most famous working director, certainly the most famous modern working director, you know, who's not Spielberg or Scorsese. Yeah, it's a huge movie. If you're unaware of who Oppenheimer is, it's based on the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the inventor of the atomic bomb, the man who spearheaded the Manhattan Project that built the atomic bomb. It's, um, yeah, Killian Murphy is in the title role. That's, you know, there's not a lot of background. There's not a lot to kind of set. I don't think this movie needs a lot of setup. But, Elliot, you were incredible. You were a lot more excited about this movie than you were for Barbie. Give us your first thoughts. Uh, yeah, what did you think? Did you like this one? You know what I like? I like the fact that J stands for Julius. That's a good name, um, especially Great. for somebody as towering a historical figure as Oppenheimer. Uh, no, I, I this movie was like tailor made for me because it's about history. Uh, it's got a bunch of great actors in it. It's Christopher Nolan directed. It's a slow burn. Um, so that's that's those are all things that I love. And I was not disappointed whatsoever. I thought this movie was fantastic. Probably Nolan's best movie since... Oh, I don't know. I, I do really like Dunkirk. His best movie since Tenet. But that's that's just because uh, Nolan makes really good movies. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that this was incredible. It I don't want to give too much of my thoughts away, but I thought that it was a very complex and nuanced take on an appropriately complex and nuanced subject i thought killian murphy knocked it out of the park definite oscar worthy performance in my view everyone was on their a-game in this movie uh we got hoyt van hoytema behind the camera he's a great cinematographer he's he's up there with uh your greg frazier's and your rob uh roger deakins's uh, the writing was really sharp. I liked the framing device of the trial and the split timelines because Nolan just can't help himself. Yeah, I, I, and it, it was a, a legitimate intellectual. <laughs> that sounds so cool. I'm just gonna push up my glasses and say this was an intellectual movie for intellectual people. Um, no, it is a smart movie. It's a high-minded movie. It's dealing with a lot of grand complicated topics but it's doing so in an entertaining and engaging way and yeah this is probably my favorite movie that i've seen so far this year wow i and see i suspected this after we saw the movie that immediately afterwards you were just glowing you were abuzz with how much you enjoyed it and how much of a great time you had i do not feel as excited about this movie as you were, and we'll get into that. I had some issues that just, 
are kind of lingering with me and I can't really resolve them. I thought it was very good and it certainly met my expectations of what I kind of thought it, the quality I thought it was going to be going in. I don't think it exceeded my expectations and yeah, we'll get into some of the reasons why, but I, if he ends up winning like best director or best, best picture for this, I'll be happy just because he's finally gotten one, but I do think he will have won one for one of his, for not one of his like best movies, basically. <laughs> Elliot's, Elliot's rolling his eyes at me, but let's, you know, let's dive in. Yeah. And let's just talk, you know, about, oh, whatever. Cheaper. You're so persnickety about everything let's dive in let's start with i think the star of the show killian murphy as oppenheimer this is a huge huge role he's in the movie for the bulk of an incredibly a very lengthy movie this is his first time as really the leading man i don't know how i've never seen peaky blinders so i don't know if he's the main character in yeah. that well, he's the main character in that. He's also the main character in 28 Days Later. Okay. So he's been a leading man before, but not in a Nolan movie and not in, I think, a movie of this caliber, of this size. I think he did an incredible job. He's so amazing in this. He really brings a lot of complexity to a character who... Not a lot of things are made incredibly explicit in the film. There's a lot of implied sort of conflict and issues, especially in the back half after they've dropped the atomic bomb. But a not, not, you know, none of it is like him saying things like, I feel bad about what happened with the bomb. Instead, it's all communicated through just this gradual, like, deadening of Oppenheimer. That at the beginning of the movie, he's kind of full of life. He's a bit more excited. And as the movie goes along, he just gets more and more dead inside. Which is communicated through Killian Murphy's gorgeous blue eyes. And just a thousand-yard stare in almost every shot. So, I think Killian Murphy did an amazing job. Elliot, what did you think of... Uh, our boy CM. Yeah, I was I was really excited for a Cillian Murphy showcase. Uh, I am currently watching Peaky Blinders. Uh, he is the main character, and I think that he does a very good job with that. But the character doesn't ask nearly as much of him as this one does. Um, Tommy Shelby, the character who he plays on Peaky Blinders is more of your generic, stoic, blank-faced, uh, masculine dude bro kind of character. There's more to him than that. That's an oversimplification. But he's more towards that direction of the spectrum than Oppenheimer, who is, I think, presents a more challenging task for an actor because the script needs him to, like you said, needs him to communicate a lot of internal tumult and internal decision making that he can't communicate via dialogue so we have to know his 
conflict and his regrets and his fears without those being explicitly laid out for us by the script. So that slack has to be picked up by the actor. Um, there's a there's your mini acting class from Elliot who hasn't acted at anything since high school. But yeah, I think that he, he does it incredibly well. He, his facial expressions are not exaggerated to the point where he just looks silly, but they're not um, restrained to the point where he doesn't really, he isn't really emoting at all. He's just in the right area. Um, his American accent is okay. I don't actually, I'm not even sure what his accent would be because he lived in Europe for a while. I don't know. His accent doesn't sound like his Irish accent, which if you've ever <laughs> heard Killian Murphy talk in his original accent, his real accent, it's a, it's a bit of a trip. Uh, and yeah, he just, he's got, it's just a perfect performance. I mean, maybe not a perfect performance, but it is a it's a standout career defining performance. Yeah. I uh, I agree with that. I think he's going to be kind of a shoe-in for at least a nomination if not a win for best actor here depending on how the other big name movies shake out. Let's talk about now. Let's move to the side characters. There are so many gosh dang characters in this movie. The film is a practical cavalcade of famous people that Nolan knows showing up for like two scenes and then not appearing again. But I think the standouts that everyone's kind of discussing is Robert Downey Jr. as, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Straws. Lewis. Right? Lewis Straws, yeah. Uh, Emily Blunt as Oppenheimer's second wife isn't he married before her for in real life he is i don't think they really mention it in the movie but i want to say yeah, i had seen I'll, that. I'll i'll give it a google okay well while elliot googles that i'll continue listing the more important if you're a huge fan of the santa claus movies the guy who played the elf bernard shows up as like oppenheimer's buddy he was not married before nope, he was only married the one time okay my bad retraction so Emily Blunt as his wife, and then Florence Pugh as this woman that he has an affair with, and a whole, again, there's so many famous people in this. Elliot, did you have any standouts? Did you have any characters that you thought either the actor did a particularly good job, or you just thought the character was more impressive or of note? Hmm. I don't know, because this is definitely, like, this is absolutely Oppenheimer's movie. This is a showcase for him as a character and for Killian Murphy as an actor. So there's not a whole lot of room, I don't think, for people to stand out. I think that Matt Damon was a definite, if, if, if I would classify anyone as a standout, it would probably be him. Um, I liked his... I, Matt Damon is a great actor, and also I liked his character. He played a General Groves, wasn't that his name? Um, yeah, something like that. Who's and he does a great job as the like straight laced military man trying to do his best in a difficult situation, trying to work with fairly difficult people whose minds he doesn't fully understand. I also. I think that Jason Clark, who played the prosecutor, quote-unquote prosecutor, in Oppenheimer's 
trial that's not a trial. I think that he's a slept on actor. Uh, if you've seen Thanks. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, he plays the main character. Well, the main human character in that. And I think he does a great job. And he does a great job in this um, as this very hard-nosed, aggressive prosecutor. And I really liked watching the different ways that he presented himself to the different witnesses. Like he tried to get a little bit more friendly with Kitty, Oppenheimer's wife, and he was much more um, hostile towards Oppenheimer himself. And I, I just thought that those were all really good touches by the actor, by Jason Clark. So those would probably be my two standouts. Um, but yeah, I, I liked everyone else. There, uh, Remy Malik. I mean, <laughs> he's there for three scenes he talks in one of them so i don't know if he just doesn't pull as big a paycheck as i thought or if he just really wanted to work with nolan but yeah this is an ensemble cast yeah it's i mean there's so many other famous actors who show up that we haven't even mentioned gary oldman shows up for just one scene as truman which elliot and i kind of like freaked down about we were like oh shoot truman he just needs stalin and he's got the big three <laughs> let's yep. go he could star in he could be the only star in a movie about uh i think potsdam is the conference where they all three went or maybe yalta i'm not 100%. yeah I'll Google that as well to make sure to, we want to limit our retractions that we have to issue for this episode. Yeah. So Gary Oldman, Casey Affleck shows up briefly as well. Um, there's so many other ones. I think the standouts for me, I would echo Matt Damon kind of plays Matt Damon types in a lot of his movies. And he's definitely a Matt Damon type in this movie. But I mean, it's like a shot in the arm when he shows up, he kind of bursts in the movie gets a lot more exciting when he shows up. It feels like it has a lot more energy. He's very good. I would echo everything Elliot said. I also want to shout out just because I'm so glad he's successfully getting more famous. Hopefully Alden and Heinrich who plays Lewis Strauss's like, aide or intern the guy who's like helping him through the nomination process i i am such a huge fan of him he's fantastic in hail caesar probably the best part of that movie and i thought he was really good as han solo in the solo movie and he was kind of dropped off the face of the earth after that movie kind of bombed so i'm really glad that he shows up here i think he does a really good job playing you know somewhat of a naive character against Robert Downey Jr. is very angry and cynical Lewis. But really, I think everyone does a really good job. It's amazing that there's this big of a cast for such a long movie, and so many of them have just tiny scenes. But yeah, all of the actors do a phenomenal job. It's amazing. Elliot, what, what, what would you like to talk about now? Because I think there's a lot of different you know, there's a lot of stuff here. You already said it's an intellectual movie. It's a very complex movie. Uh, you know, you liked it a lot more than me. I don't want to <laughs> just get into bashing it right away because I did really like it. But what's, you know, what would you like to talk about next? Well, first, well, first of all, I was right. It was Potsdam that Amazing. Truman was at because Yalta was, uh, that was when Roosevelt was still president. Second of all, I do think... 
Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has gotten a lot of buzz for this movie. This is obviously his first major movie post Tony Stark. Um, and I think that RDJ is a good actor. I don't think that he... It's not entirely his fault because his character very much plays into a lot of the behaviors and demeanors that Tony Stark also played into. So I don't think that he really distinguished himself from his most defining uh, role. But still, it was good. Um, Next, I think we should talk about... We should talk about the way that this movie handles its incredibly dense and complex subject matter because it's not just about some very high level science it's also about the responsibility that these people had to build a weapon of mass destruction that had there was every intention of using it um probably my favorite part about the movie is just the way that it portrays how everyone dealt with what they were doing, especially Oppenheimer, because he was constantly rationalizing his involvement. I I feel like he was never really grappling with his work as much as he was trying to preemptively excuse it or excuse himself, which I think plays into the ultimate tragedy of him as a person and as a character And yeah, I just thought that the movie did such a good job of portraying these characters in a realistic and understandable way, despite the undeniable exoticism, maybe exoticism isn't the right word, but the novelty of the situations that they were in. Like, I Mm. felt very close to all of the characters, despite not really... Have it, despite having never really been in a an analogous situation. But yeah, so I thought that the, the way the movie integrated its themes is the way that I always think you should go, and that's to make them a part of the story and a part of the characters rather than just something that characters talk about occasionally. Yeah, and I think the movie does a really good job too just in the form of the film, especially in the contrast between kind of the first half of the movie, which I would say is the beginning of the movie up to when they successfully test the atomic bomb for the first time to the back half of the movie, which is that moment until the end of the film. The first half is very dedicated, in my opinion, to in every conceivable way, making you get caught up in the energy and the excitement and the paranoia that everyone was experiencing in this moment and how they all were kind of tripping over themselves to build this bomb. And it wasn't until they dropped, like they successfully dropped it for the first time that they started to slow down and think, wait a second, like, what is this going to be used for? What is the impact of this that the first half of the movie, and I see this especially with the music, the music is constantly, it felt like the music from the end of Inception, that it's just a very driving, exciting, it's constantly raising the tension. 
And I think it really helped put you in this mindset of the Germans are trying to develop this crazy bomb. If they have it and we don't, then that's going to be right. Horrific. That's going to be so awful. They'll be able to right destroy us and destroy everything we stand for. And right. Oppenheimer is experiencing these visions and these ideas of the quantum universe and what a quantum right universe could mean for our our universe, the universe that we can see. And so I think in that way, the movie does such an amazing job of pulling you along. And then about halfway through, it kind of pulls the rug out from under you and goes, wait, these are really important things that you should have been thinking about all along. These are things like Oppenheimer should have been thinking about. He shouldn't have gotten to like, he shouldn't have built it and then thought, should I build it? He should have maybe been thinking, should I build it all the way along the path? And I told a lot of people after we watched Oppenheimer and we were waiting to go into Barbie that I, you know, I think the dropping of the atomic bomb represents probably one of the most thorny moral questions maybe in the history of humanity, just in terms of the potential costs benefit analysis that goes that would go into a question like this and i don't want to get bogged down with answering that question personally but i think in terms of the movie representing what people were thinking about and what the people who made this decision and helped make this decision possible in terms of communicating their ideas and feelings and emotions i think this movie does a fantastic job especially again for Oppenheimer. I see the first half is him just rushing to build it. And then the second half is him taking a second and going, okay, like, I don't really feel very good about having done this thing. So I think it is a very dense movie, but it's, I think it's also um, easy to grasp enough that even if you know nothing about anything, I think you can still watch the movie and come away with some sense of, the philosophical musings that Oppenheimer was kind of having. Wow. Yeah. That's actually very well put, especially for Nathan. Her, her. Um, well, that, that was really long and ram- I realized as I ended it, I was like, I could, probably could have shaved a lot of stuff out of that explanation. No, I think you made a really good point. So yeah, obviously the dropping of the bomb is a complex question. I'm a little bit more privy to the historical side of it. Um, I don't. I, I also don't want to get into it. It uh, it rests on a lot of speculation on who knew what and when um, about the capabilities of Japan in the last days of the war. The ca- the possible threat that the Soviet Union posed to both Japan and the Western world. The level of Truman's desire to make a geopolitical move by demonstrating the power of this weapon, it's very complicated. Um, But I do think that this movie engages with it in a balanced and nuanced way. It doesn't doesn't feel one-sided. It doesn't feel particularly one-sided. I also think that you make a great point about how everyone got caught up in what they were doing, in what I'm going to coin... Uh, with a very pretentious academic sounding term as like the ecstasy of purpose. Um, the the all-consuming joy, or joy isn't the right word, but 
the all-consuming thrill of being part of this huge, grand project that's going to change the world, that has the potential to end wars in the minds of some of its workers. And then after it act- after that purpose is fulfilled and they don't have the immediate constant flow of these the the this information telling them that this has to be done this is going to be incredible this is going to change the world then everyone just kind of stops and looks around and is like wait but but what does this mean for me what does this mean for the world um and that's what yeah again that's just what i love so much about this movie is that it's real it's asking those questions and it's asking them in such an engaging and thought-provoking way like this is a movie that I want to think more about, that I want to have conversations about. And that's that's the best kind of movie. Those that describes all of my favorite movies. Movies that I don't want to leave in the theater. They're movies that I want to think more about and I want to hear ever what everyone thinks about them so we can start talking and being like, yeah, well, 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 philosophy, science, characters, narrative, woohoo! That kind of that's basically that's the depth of most of my conversations. <laughs> Well, you you have a very dumb friend group. I think. I think the the issue wow. is you. It's definitely. Uh, I just like to say that does not, uh, Marissa. That does not include the executive producer. So. Oh gosh. I really yeah, like we that. Need to, though, we need to keep the executive producer happy because she like threatened to pull the plug on us at the wedding. Just <laughs> so. just. Is does she have access to a plug she can pull? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it. That's funny. I do really like that though. A movie I don't want to leave in the theater. That's a really that's a very poetic sort of line. I think the last thing I would like to talk about here before we get into kind of my negatives and we start arguing like children, the movie is a technical masterpiece. I mean, you already mentioned Hoyt Van Hoytema. He goes off on the camera in this movie. I love all of the intense close-ups, very kind of Silence of the Lambs-esque, but that are like right on Killian Murphy's face, right on characters' faces. So you can see every little emotion as he's processing you know, the final shot of the movie is him kind of processing what Einstein just told him. And you can just see every piece of him like putting together in his head, like, oh shoot, yeah, maybe that was wrong of me. So I really, I really like that. Uh, the editing, I will say the editing of this movie feels like they were trying really hard to deliver it in exactly three hours. Because especially in the opening of the movie, and I can't decide if this is, if this was intentional as a, like, we're trying to keep you moving, like I was talking about earlier, that they're trying to pull us along very quickly without giving us time to think. But the editing in the conversations in the beginning of the movie is very, like, quick. It's just line delivery, cut, line delivery, cut. There's very little room for the lines to kind of breathe. And I think it's intentional to just keep pulling you along but it's also annoying i hate editing like that it really frustrates me because that's not how people talk in conversations usually we have to sit and think about what we say before we can say it unless we're like a genius or aaron sorkin in which case we can just have some 
quippy little remark off the dome. Also, the sound design, just in terms of like the soundscape of the film, the atomic bomb test, I mean, you can hear a pin drop and then you can hear kind of the wind. It, the sound design just creates an incredible soundscape, I think, where there's so many scenes where he uses sound or an absence of sound to just communicate this heady, guilty sort of feelings that Oppenheimer is going through. Uh, it's crazy. The music's amazing. Ludwig, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, Gorison, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. The music is so good. The music is incredibly good. I don't know if I'd listen to it casually because I haven't yet, but it's only been out for a week. But yeah, on a technical level, I mean, this movie is just crazy. It had to have been a huge pain to film. Nolan is notoriously a stickler for stupid things that don't matter. So I'm sure this would have was very annoying to film, but it looks amazing. It sounds amazing. It is a real testament to a director that has spent 11 movies perfecting how he wants to make movies. And now he gets to make three hour behemoths exactly the way he wants to. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's, that's also a really good point. This is very recognizably a Nolan movie. Like Nolan has a distinct style in directing, in editing, in soundtrack, in presentation. He knows and even the whole uh, multiple timelines thing, which I do think we joke about Nolan not being able to help himself. But I have a book of interviews uh, with Nolan about his different movies called The Nolan Variations. And it does indicate that that's less of a pretentious stylistic choice and more of a reflection of Nolan's real belief that past, present and future are not as distinct categories as we typically view them. So I do think that there is an actual point to the way he structures his movie's timelines. Uh, one other technical aspect that I want to call out that we don't usually talk about, mostly because we're stupid and don't really quite understand what makes it good and what makes it bad, but the makeup in this movie was good enough mm. for me to recognize it. Like, they didn't digitally de-age or age up any of its actors, and thank you, Makeup people or Nolan or whoever made that decision because I cannot stand it when they do that. I, I think that is such a dumb technology and I can't wait for it to die uh, so we can stop looking at it. But yeah, Killian Murphy in his when in when it was doing Oppenheimer's earlier days, he looked like he looked like in Batman Begins. And then he looked like a middle-aged guy in the middle section and the old person makeup at the very end when he and his wife are getting their medals also it, it just looks so much better than if they were to digitally de-age them so thank you keep doing that hollywood take notice please i beg you i i, I can't tell you how much i hate digitally de-aging or aging or whatever it's terrible yeah so that that was good also not for nothing, but also in the makeup department is there's a shot when Oppenheimer, he's announcing the success of the bomb drops on Japan to a crowd of people. And this is another example of great, of a great choice of sound design because you can't hear that they're all applauding. 
but you can't hear any of that. You can just hear the people like shuffling around and occasionally there's like a scream or a moan that communicates where Oppenheimer is, where his headspace is. And there's a shot of a woman who is supposed to look like her face is being melted off by a nuclear blast. And it is, it is disgusting. It is a very harrowing shot because of course she's like smiling, this great big smile and clapping and her skin is flapping off and it's disgusting, but it's a really great moment thematically and for Oppenheimer's character and the makeup is very realistically appalling. (laughs) I I agree with that. I think the last thing that I'm going to shout out before I'm going to diss the movie the Nolan gets a lot of flack for his writing and I don't think he's like the greatest writer to ever live or anything and I do think it's best when he's accompanied with another writer like his brother who I think helped him write like Interstellar and stuff and Dunkirk which is one of my favorite Nolan movies has almost no dialogue so that's just you know to tell you how good of a writer he is But he wrote this movie all by himself, and I think it is really good. It's surprisingly funny, in my opinion. I can't call to mind any specific jokes, but I was laughing, like, a reasonably high amount. So the script is surprisingly funny. The only moments that I thought were like, okay, this is just stupid. When Florence Pugh grabbed the book, like, mid-coitus, and asked him to read, and it was the I Have Become Death, the Destroyer of World. That is so mind-numbingly stupid. I can't imagine anyone on Earth. It, it baffles me that there's people who, like, he wrote that and thought, yes, this is a good scene. And then they acted the scene, and at no point was either of the actors like, hey, this is a stupid, it's so goofy. It's It's the only moment that's like one of those memes that you see about Oppenheimer where like Einstein shows up and he's like, I'm here to talk to you about the Manhattan Project. That it's like, it feels like it's in a different movie. It's not as mature as whatever. But the writing on the whole is very good. The writing in the one scene where Emily, where Kitty is just like shutting down Jason Clark's character is so good and I love characters just absolutely slamming the door in the face of other characters. So I love that scene overall, the movie very well written for a director who is not really known for having that good of writing saying that here's my issue. I cannot for the life of me figure out why on earth the Lewis Strauss stuff is in this movie. This movie is best when it's just showcasing Oppenheimer and his internal struggle and moral struggle. And so I'm even fine with like the time jumping between, you know, his trial and the other thing. But I don't understand why we spend so much time with Lewis. I don't feel like it adds much. And in interviews, Nolan said that the black and white stuff was like objective history that there's recordings of. We know this happened. This is what people said for sure. The color things are subjective reality is kind of Oppenheimer's experience. And we can even see some of that, that when 
it shows Oppenheimer, I can't remember, like defending isotopes or attacking isotopes. They show it for the first time in black and white and it doesn't like no one's that upset. And then they show it again in color and you can see that Lewis is like pissed. And so, right, there's a subjective truth and the objective truth. But I don't really feel like that adds much to the movie's depiction of Oppenheimer. It could have if they made it more ambiguous. If like, because Lewis seems to feel that Oppenheimer was just like refusing to play ball because he was just because he just did, didn't like Lewis or because he was a narcissist. The movie makes it pretty clear that he wasn't playing ball because he felt bad about what he did. I felt like if the movie had made it less explicit, the Lewis stuff would make sense because then there would be this question of, oh, was Oppenheimer just a jerk or was did he genuinely feel bad? But the movie makes it pretty clear that he did feel bad or that he had issues with what he did. So I'm kind of confused as to why we needed all of this, especially, again, the movie is three hours long. So I just wonder why we needed all this stuff with Lewis if it doesn't really add that much to the thematic or emotional heft of the film. But, uh, you know, what do you think? I mean, that's my main issue. And that's like a good 30 some minutes of the movie. So, you know, what do you think? Do you think that's, what do you see as kind of the point of those scenes somewhat, I guess? Yeah, I, I can definitely see what you're saying. I think, I don't think I can definitely agree that it's not, handled in the most artful of ways um i would say that it's mostly about a framing device of just giving us like a perspective from which to view the movie and uh, some breaks to i mean like we said this is something that nolan does a lot is that he will have he will often kind of set up moments in the past immediately before showing them by having them mentioned in the future or in the present timelines. Uh, I also think that the stuff with Strauss in the trial is more about the tragedy of Oppenheimer's life, like his personal tragedy of his fall from grace in the eyes of the American public, and also showing more about his naive faith in people because he's always talking like he the thing that is always coming up in those scenes is or in this in the past scenes as they relate to the to Strauss is that he's not fighting him that Oppenheimer is just sort of letting him he's not being very vociferous in his own defense and I think that's about Oppenheimer that's supposed to communicate Oppenheimer's fundamental belief in the rationality of people that we see earlier when he's talking about how the bomb is going to end all wars because once we use it nobody else will want to use it because they'll understand that this is a terrible destructive weapon that can never be used again so that's what i would say um it's not my favorite part of the movie it probably almost certainly could have been handled better i definitely it was not in my list of complaints my very short list of complaints that i had after the movie um so you can talk about that but i i do want to say that my 
biggest problem is probably how the movie, how difficult it can be to keep all of the characters in your head. Like, even when they show brief shots of people after mentioning their names, they don't always do that. And sometimes they're talking about someone who I'm like, okay, which one is that? (laughs) Because there are a lot of people in this movie, and it doesn't always do the best job of keeping us updated on the most important ones, so remember who they are and what they look like. Yeah, I I didn't have as much of that issue, but there was definitely some characters, and especially when they were working at Los Alamos, there were times where they would mention a character, and I was like, who? Like, what? what are you talking about? And even when they revealed near the end of the movie that Fuchs, one of the scientists at Los Alamos, was a soviet spy they showed him and i was like he was in the movie before this moment (laughs) what are you talking about you know just one of those i've never seen this man before in my life sort of moments for me yeah i guess i i sort of agree i see what you're saying about the lewis street scenes that it is more about the legacy of oppenheimer and the kind of final encapsulation of his life that he was railroaded by this guy and then this guy didn't even achieve anything from it didn't even get to be what was he trying to be minister of commerce or something silly he bought it was a cabinet position but yeah he was thwarted by jfk dude wow that is i'm assuming that's actually what happened but that's kind of like an avengers you know yeah some senator from massachusetts Yeah, if you want to see that movie, watch the sequel by Oliver Stone, JFK. Um, if you want to see what hap- ended up happening to him, yeah, don't watch that movie. Oh. Okay, whatever. I'm not. We're not going to get into it. I don't think you've even seen it, but whatever. Yeah, I don't really have a ton else. There's some things that are a little undercooked, just in regards to the characterization of Oppenheimer, that he's referred to as a womanizer. We don't see much of it. Although the alternative is watching just a cavalcade of Killian Murphy sleeping with women, which I would not, I don't feel like that adds anything to the movie. The one kind of woman who gets a lot of screen time besides Emily Blunt is Florence Pugh. I think her character is, there's not much there, but I don't think it's bad everything that there's too little of in the movie, the idea of having more of it, in my opinion, doesn't really make the movie that much better. Like, cause it's not really connected with what I think the thematic heft or the main idea of the movie is. I don't think more scenes with Florence Pugh would really drive home anything about Oppenheimer as a person that the scenes we have didn't do. So really, yeah, my only issue is those scenes with Lewis, but that does constitute like a decent chunk of the movie. So that's, you know, that'll show up in my rating. But do you have any uh, final thoughts, Elliot? Well, I agree. I think, like we've already said, this is Oppenheimer's movie through and through. So pretty much everything that happens in this movie happens in the context of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And so to have, to show a bunch of people doing stuff outside of that context wouldn't make much sense because that would just be extraneous to the movie's laser focus on Oppenheimer and his legacy and his activities. Um, 
I, I do sort of agree with the idea that there are things that are mentioned that don't really go anywhere. They're fairly minor. To me, it just seems like, so this movie is based on a book called American Prometheus, which is about Oppenheimer, obviously. If I were to hazard a guess, it, I would say that that's just stuff that they wanted to include from the book. And so they just kind of put it in there. Yeah, the only other thing I want to say is that is just to call out like the detonation of the atomic bomb is one of the best scenes of the year, full stop. Uh, it's use of pacing and of framing and of sound. Like this movie does a great job of knowing when to be quiet and when to be loud. And the shots of the billowing pillars of flame and smoke are gorgeous and terrifying. They're exactly what they need to be for something this powerful and this destructive. And the whole setup is just really good. It's very tense. And it's just building and building and building to a perfect payoff. Yeah, it was a fantastic, immaculate scene. But uh, I don't I don't really have anything else to say. I feel like I've 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 done my job and that's spread the good word of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess if we're talking about favorite scenes, I would love to shout out. I think the ending of this movie is really fantastic. I felt kind of weirdly emotional at the final scene where Einstein tells Oppenheimer like, hey, one of the like eventually you're going to get a medal. You're going to get all this stuff, but it's not going to be for you. And then Oppenheimer just has these visions of right earth destroy of us destroying ourselves with his web, the weapons that he's created. And I thought that was just a perfect final kind of shot and final idea of just this man that he didn't have to show. Cause I think Oppenheimer lived for like 20 some years after he got railroaded, he, you know, was sentenced and sentenced in kangaroo court. He lived for some period of time. I think Elliot might be looking it up to fact check me. But the fact that this movie didn't need, right, some extended epilogue, and it just needs that final scene to communicate the ideas that would define Oppenheimer in those 20 years, I thought was really amazing. I felt feelings while watching that sequence play out so i i think the ending is really good another great ending from nolan who's kind of a master of ending things okay so he was stripped of his security clearance in 1954 and then he died in 1967 so he lived for about um 13, 13 years afterwards Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I I have one more scene that is that is also also I really liked, and that's the scene. It's one of the ones in black and white when Strauss assembles the AEC to talk about the potential that the Soviet Union has detonated successfully detonated a hydrogen bomb. Because I feel like that's the beginning of the end for Oppenheimer. Like that's both mm. where he starts to realize just what he has contributed to unleashing this like insane arms race the of increasingly risky and dangerous shows of power to the other side and also where he starts trying to campaign against building a hydrogen bomb because he knows that it's just going to 
keep escalating and keep creating more and more dangerous things. But that's also where the seeds of his downfall are planted because his opposition to that is a big part of how they're able to railroad him later on. And I thought that it was just a really good scene. Like the music was going really hard and it was tense and everyone was like, Oh yeah, everyone's really serious. It, it was a, there was a lot of really good energy is what I'm trying to communicate with that series of grunts. <laughs> it was a very intense scene. Um, and I really liked it. No. So yeah, I, this is it. This was a great movie. This is one of the mo- the best movies of the year. Probably my favorite that I've seen so far this year. There's very little that I didn't like about it, aside from quibbles about the artfulness of how they handled the Strauss scenes, which I do agree to some extent with Nathan. Also, how they handled their very large cast. But on the whole, this is a fantastic movie. I would highly recommend you go see it in theaters if you haven't already. It's definitely worth the price of admission to see it on the big screen. See it with the better sound and the better picture. I'm going to give it an A. Wow. Well, uh, I think I can echo a lot of the things that Elliot already said about this. It is incredibly artful. You should definitely go and see it in the theaters if you can because it's a a very, it's an amazing experience. And it's something that if you watch this movie five years from now on your TV, you'll be kicking yourself that you didn't see it in theaters. I mean, this is an interstellar. I think interstellar is the movie I see most often of people. They catch it on Netflix and they're like, dang, I wish I had seen that in theaters. Well, don't, don't let that happen to you. (laughs) Don't let FOMO happen to you. Yeah. Um, I think the Lewis, the, the scenes with Lewis bring it down more for me than they do for you. I think just because my whole thing with movies is just, it does every scene contribute to the idea of the movie, the point of the movie, the like fundamental reason the movie exists. Does every scene help the audience like get to that idea? But I still think this is a really fantastic movie. I think I've kind of come up a smidge on it, just talking with you about it. So maybe if I talk to more people, it would go up even more. But I'm going to give it an 8.1 out of 10. All righty. We should have asked Lydia to give her brief thoughts on this. To cut them in like Ryan's stuff. Yeah. All of of us. Yeah. Um, I did want to, before we jumped into recommendations, where would this fall in a Nolan ranking for you? Because I I put it in my Nolan ranking, and it's right below like all of the Nolan movies that I think are just inc- like incredible masterpieces. So it's right below Memento for me. It's So it's behind Memento, Interstellar, Inception, Dark Knight. I think it's five. Dunkirk, right? I think that's I think that's where it is. So I think it's six. So it's right in the middle. But again, very good movie. Where do you think this falls for you, Elliot? I don't know. I've never actually sat down to rank all of Nolan's movies. That would be a hard task for me because I like most of them, almost all of them, a great deal. I would probably put it above Dunkirk. Um, I guess I would say I'd probably put it below The Dark Knight and Inception, probably Memento as well. But I think, I think after that is where I would put uh, Oppenheimer. So I would just put it above Dunkirk from that list. Mm. 
Couldn't be me. I love Dunkirk. Dunkirk, underrated Nolan movie. He should have won Best Picture for that, TBH. But um, that's beside the point. Recommendations. I have a recommendation. Elliot is already shaking his head because I told it to him earlier, and he doesn't think it's a very good one. Uh, I'm going to go with Mank, which is a David Fincher movie from couple years ago it should be on netflix still because it was a netflix original but it's about herman mankiewicz i want to say his first name is herman herman mankiewicz who is the man who wrote citizen kane which is widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time i am recommending this because this movie is also a bit of a throwback kind of like oppenheimer is it's filmed in black and white it's filmed in the style of old-timey sort of movies. Eric Messerschmidt is the cinematographer, and he does an incredible job with this movie. The cinematography is amazing. Gary Oldman plays Mank, and he does an amazing job. And the story, I think, is just similar to Oppenheimer. It's set in a similar time period with just politically in America. It's set in the late 30s, compared to Oppenheimer's kind of 60s, but it has some of the same ideas of, you know, we're concerned about communists and there's a bit of a red scare starting to build up into what it would become. But I think this is a really fascinating movie looking at another genius creating something that he's not sure if he's a good person for having made it. That, And you have to kind of watch the movie to get all of the nuance of this, but Citizen Kane is about a real historical figure or is a very veiled allusion to a real historical figure. And Herman is just not sure if he should be making a story about this person. It's, I think it's a really interesting movie. I think it's a fascinating companion piece to Citizen Kane. But I think if you enjoyed Oppenheimer and kind of the dense ideas that were present in it of a person wrestling with an idea after they kind of already did the idea, I think Mank is a fantastic movie. So that's my recommendation. Hmm. Whatever. That movie's okay. Um, I think I need to rewatch it. It When I first watched it, I wasn't very impressed. I think I was expecting something different. It's definitely like the least Finchery movie David Fincher has ever directed, either that or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But yeah, so I can... Yeah, whatever. My recommendation is for definitely a more hidden gem, uh, especially if you're old, if you're young like I am. Uh, my it's called Threads, which is a movie that Nathan has never seen, but that I have told him about a few times. It's a 1984 movie. It was actually a television film that was broadcast on the BBC. It's a British movie about nuclear war, essentially. Uh, so I chose it, obviously, for the similarity of nukes. Um, although, to be honest, that's kind of where the similarities end. I, I kind of went, I kind of broke character and chose a little bit more of a stretch for this one. But this movie is, uh, it's set in 1984. And it's about <laughs> a the impact of nuclear war and nuclear winter. The bulk of it is set in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war. So like in the months, maybe to a year afterwards, and then there's more stuff about nuclear winter. But 
a big part of the, what, ethos of this movie is about the absurdity of the idea of nuclear war, because a big framing device is it takes recommendations and advice directly from official government documents that were issued to people to like tell them what to do in the event of nuclear war, like where should you hide? What should you do afterwards? And it will like throw that text up on the screen and then show how ridiculous it is to think that that would ever work. Like one of the things is a bunch of elect elected low level officials are supposed to gather in a certain place to start the administration of rescue efforts and basically take over the role of government. But all those people get trapped in their building and starved to death. Um, and it's like, uh, you should try to plant food or, you know, forage for food afterwards and nobody can find food. So they just starve to death. And it's, it's like showing that these things that the government is telling you are trying to assuage you of the necessity, persuade you of the necessity of these weapons and the, the, uh, low, the, how low risk they are and showing that that's just stupid. So it's, it's kind of like a very serious version of Dr. Strangelove in that it's taking on as ridiculous, the idea of mutually assured destruction and the idea of nuclear weapons that they're, there really is no point to them other than convincing people to fight proxy wars instead of direct wars. Um, it's really good. It's very harrowing, obviously. Uh, it's got a lot of great performances. I'm not 100% sure where you would find it if the, it sounds like something you would want to watch. I watched it on a movie service called Mubi back when I was subscribed to it. Um, but yeah, if you can somehow find it, I would say give it a watch because it's really good. And then you, when you're out at the bars with your friends, you can impress them by saying, I've watched the 1984 British television film Threads. Do you do that a lot, Elliot? Do you oh, tell absolutely. them? Every time at I'm bars? at a bar, I'm out there talking about, about Threads. Oh, gosh. That but is hey, funny. All of this talk of nuclear war has put me in mind of the old saying, life is hard and full of disappointments. This is very true. I'm sure that Julius, our boy JR, would agree with you on that. Um, yeah, this is our second. If you haven't listened to the Barbie episode, go back, listen to that, or you know, watch Barbie and then do that. Support cinema. I think everyone should be doing that but yeah i don't we we don't really have much to banter about here at the end either but we will be next week we're doing usually on the 10th or an episode divisible by 10 we do a special episode so the 68th episode was supposed to be our least favorite movies of all time. We pushed it back in honor of this historic occasion. So the next episode is going to be our least favorite movies of all time. So if you want to hear us get upset and Elliot yell a lot, then tune in next week for that incredibly exciting episode. <laughs>